You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome, all you wiretappers. I'm here in the studio of Gangland Wire. Got a special show for you today, I think. Uh, I'm going to tell you about a corrupt policeman in uh, New York City named William Peast and, and how he did a lot of ratting to uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano and John Gotti. And, and of course, you know what happened with uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano. But first, I want to thank a few people. I've got uh, emails and uh, I've got uh, Venmo donations from different people. I've got Dylan. Thanks a lot, Dylan. Uh, he said he would love to help out on the podcast whenever he can. I appreciate that. We got Matthew Tuche, I think, is his last name. It, it's hard to tell just off of these because uh, uh, he just signs it Matt. But anyhow, he grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, and he thanks me for all my hard work, and he always wondered what happened to his little league coach. Uh, LOL, kidding but not kidding. He must have had one of those guys that we talked about in in the New England crime family was Raymond Patriarca, your uh, little league coach there, Matt. Interesting, interesting. There's more to that story. John John Sheehan, he said, love the show. I was wondering if you've given thought to doing a piece on the current mob war going on in Montreal. Well, seems like there's been eight hits so far in uh, 2019. It's pretty wild. But, uh, yeah, that is wild. And we are, uh, Cam and I are working on doing the whole spectrum on uh, Montreal and, you know, from kind of start to uh, to up to the most current times because there is a lot going on up there. You know, there's, there's a lot of money on those docks and bringing those narcotics in. And those guys, that Vito Rizzuto, he had those docks wired, man, and, and they, they brought, you know— billions of dollars in in cocaine and, and particularly heroin that's where they got started heroin coming over the french connection but anyhow uh, i digress uh we've got uh joey joey says uh, joey cigars from chicago he uh he thanks us for the podcast and he lets me know that there's a movie coming up and i see it's just been getting getting released it was they did a program at the mob museum called mob town and it's about the Appalachian meeting, which you know we just did a uh, two-parter on that on the Appalachian meeting and and a couple other mob meetings. So November was Mob Meeting Month because that was the uh, the anniversary of the Appalachian meeting. I think it was maybe November the fourteenth. Actually, it was yeah, it was the uh, it was the night before we did our uh, Mafia Film Festival here in Kansas City. Got Jake Peterson from Wichita. He said he really enjoyed the latest podcast. He said every time there's a mob conversation, he tells people with somebody, he tells people about my podcast. I I appreciate that. He said he used to be kind of naive before myself and and Bill O, which he means Bill Owsley, I'm sure, my good friend and retired FBI agent Bill Owsley, who wrote Mobsters in Our Midst in Open City, um, educated me through your awesome books, movies, and podcasts, and wishes me a great Thanksgiving, so... Thank you, Joey. Thank you, Jake, from uh, Wichita. Barry Parks. Barry Parks said uh, he just listened to the second episode on an Appalachian meeting, and, and he mentioned, said, uh, said I mentioned the Rizzuto family in Canada and reminded me there's a Netflix show on it, the title's Bad Blood. And, and Barry Parks, uh, you know, you're one of our, our big donors. You are the capo de tutti de capi and, and been a constant supporter of this podcast all along. So I appreciate your help. 
Uh, he was at the film festival. He said he really enjoyed the film festival and, and my new film, The uh, Brothers Against Brothers, The, the Sparrow Savella War. So uh, great job. He ends with great job. So thank you for that, Barry. We've got um, Jesse. Jesse, I'm not sure where Jesse's from, but he says, I appreciate your show very much. I started listening to it a couple of months ago and really enjoy the conversations, interviews, and stories. Uh, he recently saw the mafia cop, Louis Epolito, on an old Sally Jesse Raphael from the 90s. He said he seemed like he was a great guy, and then he just learned he died in prison, which I had heard that. And he he wonders if, if you know, there's been some word out there that these guys were set up or something, but I'll tell you what, I don't think so. Uh, we did a, we talked about them in the um, uh, Gaspipe Casio uh, show what he did and uh you know to me it looks like they were they were just dirty they they almost like joined the police department uh, mob guys that joined the police department uh in order to work for the mob it looked to me like but what do i know casey walsh i remember case casey's dad was a uh, a lawyer that practiced where i did when i first started practicing law and, and actually the uh, his grandpa frank walsh was and, and his dad were the teamsters lawyers kind of the teamsters main civil lawyers here in kansas city for the local here in kansas city and there was a lot of history here in kansas city with the nick savella my boss and roy lee williams who was the teamsters leader here in kansas city and, and actually roy lee williams just before he got indicted the last time for trying to bribe Howard Cannon, a senator from uh, from Nevada, with uh, Joy Lombardo and Ellen Dorfman, uh, and he got sick right after that. Why he was he was I think he actually was promoted or he was voted in as the president of the International Teamsters Brotherhood of Teamsters, and uh, after Frank Fitzsimmons had left and they couldn't really decide on anybody else, and and finally uh, they. Uh, Roy Lee Williams was in, and, and then he got sick, and they had all those cases from the skimming, and it all kind of fell after that. I think maybe Jackie Presser got in after that, and Jackie Presser had been a top echelon informant for the FBI for a long time, but then that came to light pretty quick. So uh, I'm going to actually I'm gonna meet up with, with Casey. He gave me a nice donation. Anyhow, thank you, Casey, and uh, he's going to buy me a shot and a beer, and we're going to meet at Kelly's and talk about some of those old days here. Uh, I think this uh, sometime the next week or so. Then we got on Venmo, Mark Ryan. Mark, thank you very much. I guess he's the most recent one. Johnny Good uh, bought me a shot in a beer. Mario Serenganani. I think I talked about him before because that's such a hard name to pronounce. Sorry about that. Christopher Wright, Alan Turner, Frank Sanchez. Uh, anyhow, so, um, you know, and, and whenever you donate $25 or more also on Venmo or, or any other on the uh, website on uh, PayPal or use your credit card, uh, I'm adding in. You can get either Gangland Wire or the uh, new film uh, Brothers Against Brothers, the Savella Sparrow War, which brings up another thing. I'm, I'm uh, you know, of course, I sell it for, what, $25 on my website, and you get special features on it, three raw interviews that uh, I didn't didn't get included in there from Bill Owsley and uh, undercover highway patrolman that we worked with on that Tom Gray and and uh, Bobby Arnold I believe my old intelligence unit partner if you as many as we can in as short a time as possible and it'd be just about the time this podcast comes out I'll do another special podcast and podcast and try to get people to do this 
if you'd go and hit up hit it up on Amazon and rent it for a dollar ninety nine, maybe you've already got the DVD and you've watched it and seen the special features. But if you'll just hit it up and watch it on uh, Amazon Prime, if you got Amazon Prime, if you'd rent it for the dollar ninety nine, you have to go to the more options or other options feature to find the dollar ninety nine. Otherwise, they want to rent it to you for two ninety nine. I think is a uh, uh, HD version, but I think the SD version is exactly the same. Looks to me like I've looked at both of them. But hit that up, and as many people as I can in as short a time as possible can do that, then it will amp up in Amazon's algorithms, and they will, you know, they will start suggesting it to other people. And you know, you get those emails that said, "If you like this, you may like that," and that that eventually will kind of take off. And where it will just be a steady stream of a small stream of income, it'll be a steady little stream of income to me for to keep supporting this podcast. So that'd be a a good way that you could take a dollar ninety nine and uh, and and help this podcast, you know, for the next two or three years. So anyhow, having said all that, let's move along. Thank you, all you wiretappers out there. Uh, I can't thank you enough for supporting this and supporting my work. I find pleasure in doing it, and I hope you find pleasure in what I'm doing. So let's talk about a corrupt New York City policeman. This is in connection with John Gotti, so let's go back and see how they uncovered this guy. If you remember, if you've seen any of the stuff or the movie on Gotti, or you know... A little bit about all this, but from 1981 to 1984, the FBI taped members of Gambino Capo John Gotti's Bergen Hunt and Fish Club crew. This included his brother Gene Gotti and, and Gotti's good friend and kind of main enforcer, the guy that he trusted with, uh, with all the secrets, Angelo Ruggiero, and then a guy named John Carnelia. And Carnelia and Ruggiero, they were, uh, they were Gotti's go-to guys for everything. And Ruggiero was the main target of this wiretap, and this bu- and they had another bug going in a wiretap, and they were uncovering a multi-million-dollar-a-year heroin distribution ring. And additionally, Ruggiero, and you imagine this, he had a big mouth, and he talked incessantly. I mean, incessantly about everything. You know, when you get a guy like that on the wire, you, you got gold, man. Because sooner or later, you'll be able to. No, you may not understand what he's talking about now, but something will happen, and then you realize what he was talking about. Something else will happen. You'll come in, you'll get another informant in, and and you realize, oh, this is what he meant by that. He even badmouthed John Gotti a little bit. He said stuff like, you know, he thinks he's big stuff, and and it wasn't real bad but but he did badmouth Gotti but i guess it, in his, to his face Rogerio was mainly stroking Gotti's ego and complimenting him all the time and saying what a big man he was and you know how well he was dressed and all that so we've all known people like this i always called it the Eddie Haskell effect i remember this one guy that he was like that to my face when i was a sergeant he was like that oh yes sir yes sergeant and and but he just had this smirk all the time, and I knew behind my back he was bad mouthing him all the time. Him and a couple of his buddies, but I didn't really care. They didn't work for me, and I didn't I didn't have any respect for them. They didn't have any respect for me. I didn't care because they were a, a couple of punks and about two or three punks that 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 was the only way they could ever ever uh, act like they were somebody. So anyhow, uh, these tapes would be used as a big part of a probable cause affidavit. 
to get another listening device put inside Big Paul Castellano's home, who was the boss of the Gambino crew at that time. Uh, and see, that's how they do this. That When they file for an affidavit for a wiretap, say they have another legal tap going on, and they get conversation, and then somebody says something about, well, you know, I was up at Big Paul's, and, you know, you know how he always makes us go in the, the study and, and talk and, and be racist or whatever. You know, a guy like this will say things like that. Bam, there's some probable cause. And, and you add some, a few other little tidbits of probable cause in there, and you got a, a wiretap or a, a microphone placed inside of a really valuable place. So that's, that's why I like this other wiretap. They'll keep it hidden, and they won't file any charges and nobody will even know that they had done it because they've already spun off to a new wiretap, and they gotta got to work that one out. Sometimes these things will go on for years. So Ruggiero and, and Carnegie, they were talking a lot, and, and uh, you know, they were, they were so close to Gotti that they even participated in the murder of John Favre, who was the man who, who was a neighbor of Gotti's who hit and accidentally killed Gotti's son and. And uh, then they, they disappeared the guy. The word was later on they put him, after they killed him, they put him in a, a vat of acid to totally dispose of the body. Kind of like uh, Jimmy Hoffa, I guess. Whatever happened to John Fabra's body. In 1985, both these men, Rosario and Carnelia, would help Gotti murder his boss, Paul Castellano. Bo- both of them had their own reasons for wanting Castellano dead by this time. The FBI was moving on the heroin case. And uh, they knew that Ruggiero knew, and Gene Gotti also knew that Paul Castellano had, in the last few years, ordered the murder of the, another member of the Gambino family for merely being caught dealing drugs. He had an ironclad rule against dealing drugs because he knew with these draconian sentences that you get for drugs, that'll make an informant out of anybody. And Castellano had picked up word about these tapes that the FBI had from Ruggiero and how much he talked and, and how, you know, he suspected, I think, that they were used to, to the probable cause to get the wire or get the, the bug in his office. And he also, you know, he had bad-mouthed all these other people, and he really wanted them. Now, this Ruggiero, he, he was a dyed-in-the-wool mob guy. Uh, his uncle was Anello Della Croce, who was Castellano's underboss and had been Carlo Gambino's underboss. He he was, I mean, he was born and bred mafia in New York City. Uh, Della Croce kept Castellano fended off until he was killed conveniently for Ruggiero and, and Gotti was able to ascend to the be the boss and, and he didn't really care about that in the case against uh, Castellano died. Now, Ruggiero still had this narcotics case pending. Now, during this time, during these wiretaps, uh, Angelo Rosario would be caught trying to bribe a telephone man to find out about FBI wiretaps. And, and he'd end up having two mistrials because he tried to bar up, bribe jurors during his trial. Um, he hired a couple of different private investigators to watch the courthouse when the jurors were leaving. They'd, they'd get another guy to go and, and point out the jurors, and they'd follow them and get their license plate numbers and then get their address, and then Rosario would send somebody out to to put some pressure on them to to uh, get them in their pocket and and these both these cases fell through but they came and came out but they had mistrials and it was several years before they were being convicted now god and they got a bunch of time uh they got uh 
Gene Gotti and Cornelia got 50-year sentences, and Gene Gotti was just released in 2015. Uh, thank you guys follow this stuff on Facebook, notice that he got out. He served 30 years or 29 years of, of that 50-year sentence. That's a long time, man, to be in a penitentiary. Uh, when he came, he supposedly, Gene Gotti supposedly had a, had a deal with another mobster. They were going to stay in good physical shape when they are in prison. When they came out, they were going to go back and, and take over the uh, Gambino crime family because he felt like it was his. See, his brother John by then, had, by the time he gets out, or long before he gets out, he ends up getting finally getting convicted and, and ends up dying in the penitentiary. Another little side story, there was a guy, and I can't remember his name now, you may remember it, that got killed by a boy that was trying to date his niece, I think, and and uh, this the new Gambino crime boss had uh, had somehow done something to keep this kid from dating his niece or ordered him to stay away from her or something, and a guy came over and killed him when he was getting in his car one morning. Everybody thought, well, Gene Gotti just got out of jail. Here the Gambino boss gets killed, and, but it turned out it was just a, a uh, call that a crime of passion, I believe, in, in the uh, police lingo. Well, during all this time, there was a New York City copper named William Peast. And he worked in the public moral squads, which is like the vice unit. They worked prostitution and small gambling games, and oh, they'd work like policy if they're, you know, they maybe do a little policy uh, investigation. We had a vice unit that did the same thing, only I think policy was really gone by, I'd say, 75 or 76. I don't remember anybody working policy. Uh, they'd do prostitution and go out and, and do reverse things on uh, John's. Um, get police women to go out and stand on the street and pretend like they were uh, prostitutes and then they'd arrest the johns when they'd come up or they'd you know call up escort services and 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 i don't know just like you just let them know they're there um, hang out in some of the bars and see if they're you get a complaint on the bar that was staying open after hours and we had a city liquor control but they didn't really have much of a budget and didn't do very much so there were a lot of complaints about a joint where they'd go hang out or drinking the bar until closing time, and then if they could stay in afterwards and then pop them for that. And and they could, like, just go in and, and just kind of roust bars whenever they wanted to. So, you know, the public moral section of the vice squad, that is a primo spot. If you want to get bribes uh, from somebody who's willing to pay in order to get by with some stuff, that is a primo spot, whether it be prostitutes, Escort services can be a real lucrative source of bribes. Just saying, you know, what we will not call anybody connected to your escort service, and and or we won't send a massage parlor. We won't send anybody into your massage parlor. There's plenty of others to work, and so he he probably had a long history of corruption by this point in time. And in 1984, we're talking about, and that's about the time that uh, that this Ruggiero and these first taps were done and, and a Castellano murder it was going to happen about this time he and his wife and mother-in-law he was he was taking on December on De December 3rd 1984 he's taking his wife and his mother-in-law to a celebration uh, a church naming celebration at St. Barbara's Greek Orthodox Church in Manhattan they lived over in Brooklyn he and his wife and mother-in-law are driving across the Manhattan Bridge, and I don't know if you've ever been up, but the traffic is, is just horrendous. As you guys that live in New York, it's, it's horrendous, and everybody's going as fast as they can, and it's a, a dark and stormy night, as they say. 
low visibility and his car stalled and stopped. So he gets out and he's got all these people piled up behind him, honking horns and trying to get by in the other lanes, trying to get out and get in another lane. You know, it's always bumper to bumper and it's, it's hard to get out and around somebody. You're just stuck. And he's putting out some flares and somebody all of a sudden slips out of one lane and lays into it and hits him and rams him up against the car and and really damages one leg particularly bad. As a matter of fact, when they took him to the emergency room before he got out of the emergency room or he went right to surgery, they had to cut off his uh, foot at, at his ankle. So, you know, that that was really, really bad. They couldn't even try to save the, the bones and everything. It must have really crushed it. He has a series of operations because it won't heal. And he has two more chunks cut out of his leg. And by the end, in the next several months, he has his leg cut off almost up to the hip, up above the knee is my understanding. Uh, the one picture I've got of him, you can't really tell. And then everything I've read, I can't figure it out. But I believe it was, it was clear above the knee. And one thing said he was above the hip. He was in a body cast for six months. During that time, his commander from the public morals unit, a guy named Rosenthal, uh, probably no kin to Lefty Rosenthal from uh, Las Vegas, but anyhow, this, this commander comes in and he's saying, you know, dude, uh, you ain't coming back to work as a policeman. And he said, well, he said, I don't really want to, I, I want another job. He said, can I do something on the desk? And they said, well, you know, I don't know. What would you want to do? And he, and he kind of, I guess, as we understand it, and kind of aside, he says, well, maybe the intelligence unit. You know, I could work as a, like an analyst in the intelligence unit, and every intelligence unit has analysts. We had one in Kansas City, and he was, uh, we used to have a, a civilian, and then ended up making a law enforcement job. I think it was a little better. They could uh, kind of understand, read the reports that the guys are writing and make a little more sense of them than, than a civilian could that hadn't really ever worked a case or been on the streets or anything. He said, well, you know, I'll see what I can do. And, and in the meantime, he applies for a duty-related disability pension which would give him uh, here it's 80 percent and it's tax-free if it's a if it's uh, duty related it's totally tax-free which gives you about another 25 percent on your money and and it's like the high if you'd worked you know 32 years in kansas city whatever the most that you can work it's it's going to be 80 percent of your highest two years uh and and as if you had worked 32 years or 35 years, whatever the most you can work on this particular department was. And that would be a pretty lucrative pension. But they denied him that, and they offered him because it wasn't duty-related. It was non-duty. So they refused that. And and they, they say, we'll find out in the next uh, – uh, give you a little teaser for next time. I got a guy coming in, uh, Steve St. John, who is a guy that – has become a friend of mine. I actually worked a case on him, and he he back in the nineties, and and he was in the penitentiary. Little spoiler: he was in the penitentiary of this William Beast, and and so he's going to tell us a little bit, a lot more personally about William Beast. Let's continue on with the kind of the generic about our friend uh, Detective Beast. He did get a one point four million dollar settlement from suing a couple of different people, probably the other driver and, and maybe the city of New York for something who knows. And anyhow, he found a c- couple of different people to sue and he got a one point four million dollar settlement, but he went back to work in nineteen eighty six, two years later after being off. And he did get his job with the intelligence unit as an analyst. And he was a great analyst. He was running around from they say he was running around from wiretap operation to wiretap operation to 
different stations to uh, contacting prosecutors, contacting the feds, contacting the FBI agents, sharing information, and and he was in on top of everything. And he was able to find out where listening devices were, uh, who had what wiretaps on, even find out the uh, identity of confidential sources of information sometimes, and and cooperating witnesses, and and maybe when some particular indictment was going to come out, and, and and even from the feds. Now, let's go back. How did how did they figure out that this guy was doing this? Because he wasn't telling anybody. Now, you remember, if you've ever seen the movie on Gotti, or you know much about Gotti, when he had the Ravenite Social Club, he paid an older woman, uh, an old woman who lived in an apartment upstairs, to vacate her apartment periodically when he asked her to, and he could access that apartment from inside the Ravenite Social Club. So the FBI had a bug on the inside of They weren't getting anything. And they finally figured out that somebody would come in to meet with Gotti and he'd disappear through a side door and he was able to go upstairs to this other to this lady's apartment. So they got into that apartment, put a microphone in inside of a VCR that was in it was like a small apartment, and all those New York City apartments like that are gonna be small, easy to bug. He put this uh, microphone they put this microphone inside the VCR and they were able to wire it directly to a telephone line there was a lease line that went right back into the Manhattan FBI office into the wire room down there and they also were able to power the microphone from the current that was coming into the VCR so they didn't have to worry about changing batteries and they had this direct uh, connection they had to worry about uh, some putting something out over the air and actually, I don't even know if the normal uh, debugger could can run one of those machines because they're looking for signals going out uh, over the air and in, uh, in the spectrum. Uh, so I don't even know if you could find it unless you took the VCR apart because you can, you know VCR was probably connected to the cable. And they probably ran that uh, ran the signal right out through the cable. So it was pretty slick, and they had really good conversation. It was high quality conversation too. You could really make out the the words easily, which is hugely important. I've listened to enough wiretaps and hidden microphone uh, audio that um, having having clear sound is, is, you know, God, it just is, it's it's gold, man, it's gold. So one time a, a gaudy capo named Joe Butch Carraro and uh, another guy that John Gotti always called the Grim Reaper, who was an associate guy, in, uh, he was a Peckerwood, I guess his name was George Heiberg, came in the apartment one day and he and Gotti and Sammy the Bull Gravano were there and they told him that uh, told Sammy the Bull and they picked this up on the microphone that the state, not the feds, had planted microphones inside of Gravano's Brooklyn club. He had like a nightclub or a, so, a social club, I think, over there where he'd meet people. And uh, he also had a construction company and they planted a microphone in the uh, construction company office. Of course, this was an FBI bug, so the next day, the U.S. attorney, Bruce Mao, who was assigned to this case and was, was really prosecuting crazy on, on Gotti, he did a much better job than Rudy Giuliani did, is my understanding. He was reading this 100-page transcript, and when he saw this conversation, he called in an FBI agent named Andy Kearns, and, and they gleaned this transcript. They went over it and over it really close, and they found four clues. It looked like from the conversation that the guy was either a golfer, a lawyer, a cop, 
or somebody's cousin or some combination of those. And they didn't know exactly which clue or which one of these were pertinent and how they went together. But uh, one thing that Gotti had instructed the Grim Reaper, he said, you know, you need to take care of this guy, or George Heiberg, Heibig, said, you need to give this guy enough money, take care of this guy, buy him some new golf clubs. Now, so this agent, the first kind of the first path he went down, he knew that Gotti played at the Westchester Country Club, and Sammy Gravano's construction company had a contract to do a bunch of work there. So he thought, well, maybe, you know, they know who this guy is, and they, Gotti knows that he plays golf. They pulled the membership list, and, and that didn't really, that came up dry. They weren't coming up with any possible suspects, any cops or prosecutors or agents or anything that belonged to that club that they would suspect. Gotti also said something about every copy knows there, but that's good. You know why? He's a legitimate lawyer, so it's beautiful. So I thought maybe he was a lawyer, and they thought he was a prosecutor. He'd probably have to be a prosecutor, but... But you know they, you know, there's a lot of lawyers and there's a lot of prosecutors out there, and and of course they would start taking a look at prosecutors in the organized crime field in their own office. Since, since he talked about a state wiretap, they took a look at the state prosecutors who were involved in and around the Gravano investigation because he was talking about the bugs in Gravano's office. But uh, they were not coming up with anything there. And after Heiberg left, uh, Gotti said he didn't. They said he didn't really like him. He uh, Gotti says kind of sardonically or uh, sarcastically, rather be a better word. Said you know they all got a cop. Yeah, that's his first cousin. Yeah, they all got a cop. They got a first cousin, an uncle, or a fucking nephew. I know who the guy. And, and Gravano says I know who he's talking about. And Gotti kind of replied, and again he said, Yeah, that's his first cousin. So that's where they get the cousin and the cop. They were speculating on the golfer and the lawyer. Still couldn't figure out if Gotti meant this was Heiberg's first cousin or was this Pete's first cousin because they talked about a Pete in all this. Agent Curran, I mean, he he went full force on this, balls to the wall on this deal because it was huge, it was important. And they put pen registers on all of Heiberg's phones and cloned his beeper, which means that they were, any, any numbers that would come into his beeper, they would get a copy of it. Weren't really finding anything, but it did show, the beeper showed a lot of calls from a payphone in Brooklyn. Kearns went to that payphone and looked around. He took photos of this High Big and this Pete Mavis, who was uh, uh, connected to High Big, that, that the name Pete had been mentioned, I believe. And he found a doorman of an apartment building in the area, and, and he said, oh, yeah, I know that one guy. It's just Pete Mavis. And the doorman says, what, are you checking on all the parties they had in this building? So Curran starts, Curran, Agent Curran starts looking into this, and he finds out that uh, there was an apartment there. It was rented to one of High Big's companies, but it was just a party pad that people would show up and, you know, attractive women, probably prostitutes and and other men, and they'd have some kind of a party, and, and then everybody would leave. Nobody really lived there. And he, the, the apartment didn't have a phone, and so they pulled the phone records on that, and they found a lot of calls to a phone owned by a constant piece. And that's P-E-I-S-T, constant piece, but that meant nothing, and they kind of thought, well, this must be a party girl, and they didn't really look very close at that, and there was a lot of other numbers on there, and you kind of start down those lists, but 
unless something really jumps out at you when you got a big list you know you're look you're still looking for other clues but this Kearns, this agent he was he was dogging he he pulled out he he he, he didn't mind doing the shoe the footwork this agent he was dogged he did not mind expending the shoe leathers we used to say he got his foot feet on the streets and and pounded the pavement and another thing we used to say you get out and pound the pavement some guys want to sit behind the desk and try to use the phone this dude did not sit behind the desk and use the phone he did his share of that but he got out on the streets and he went to a relative of high bigs and uh, actually he went, he went to a relative of uh, he, he went to a relative of this pete mavis who was a good friend of of uh, the grim reapers or mr high big and he asked them, he went to them saying he was asking questions about a mortgage on a house that was being used as a business by Hybeg. Didn't really tell him what, you know, just some generic kind of a bank investigation. And and these in-laws of Pete Mavis uh, said, oh, yeah, 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 we did that. And, you know, he kind of talked to him and he, he didn't, wasn't really getting anything, but just as an aside, for some reason, this name Constance Peace had stuck in his mind. He said, uh, "Do you happen to know uh, a Constant Peace?" And and this uh, the wife and this couple said, "Oh yeah, that's Pete's cousin. Uh, you probably know her, or you know her husband. He's a detective. He's he's the one that works in the intelligence unit. Lost his leg in an accident. Bam! They go, oh shit! Here we go! Here we go! Here's here's a guy who's a detective that works in the intelligence unit." And they got his number connected to this high big. Andy Currens could not get out of there fast enough and make a beeline back to the U.S. Attorney's Office with this information. I know when you when I've done that when you go in with some does some uh, you know your captain or your sergeant or whatever, or or the U.S. Attorney that happens to be working on the case, and and you got something hot like that, you can't hardly wait to get back. You're pounding on their door immediately. And say, hey, boss, listen to this. So together, they started looking at uh, Detective William Peace and found that he was, as I said before, he's a very active analyst, and he was constantly checking with every prosecutor's office, federal and state, with the FBI, and all kinds, all the investigators gathering any kind of information on the mob there in New York. And he got Peace phone records and work logs and found out that on the day that Carrero and Heiberg told Gravano and Gotti about the bugs in Gravano's office, Pete Mavis had called Pete's phone earlier that same day. So they pick him up and bring him into internal affairs and grill him. And, and uh, he, of course, is not going to talk, especially not in internal affairs, and put him on suspension, sideline him, as, as they say. They, and Gravano, Gravano comes in. Uh, he tells them all about it. So once Gravano turned state's evidence and became a witness why they had Mr. Peace. So Mr. Peace realized that, that he's done. Uh, Sammy the Bull, who he tried to help, is going to take him down. He goes ahead and takes his uh, smaller retirement of $23,000 for being on the force for 16 years of a non-duty uh, disability retirement. And he pled guilty for selling secret police information to the mob. And he'll go into penitentiary for seven years. And that's going to be our story on the next podcast. I got my friend, Steve St. John, 
Steve, uh, Steve was a, uh, well, we won't, we won't label Steve. He, he grew up around a lot of mob guys in Kansas City. We worked a case on him in the early 90s. And when we get around to talking about that, we'll talk about that case. And, and he ended up getting a 10-year bit in the federal system in about 1991 or 92. And he served several years with, with our friend Mr. Peast. And so he's going to come in and tell us all about being in the penitentiary with Mr. Peast, which, which I think is uh, it, it will be a coup for the podcast. I think that that's a great, great addition. And we'll get Steve back in after that for some other podcast so if you have a friend or relative with a problem with drugs or alcohol make your first call to first call call 816-361-5900 or go to their website www.firstcallkc.org and don't forget i I got this new movie out brothers against brothers the savella spiro war we had a screening at a kansas city mafia film festival a couple weeks ago and it was sold out all weekend, and, and everybody seems to like this movie. And I did a special screening for people that worked on it, and, and they all seemed to like it too. They were my actors. I did a lot of in, in this particular movie. And the last one in Gangland Wire, I didn't really do much uh, reenactment stuff. I did a lot of reenactment in this. We had a, a scene in a uh, strip club. We turned a local tavern here into a strip club for an afternoon. And and, uh, and my friend Steve, uh, Steve St. John, he was able to get me a real deal stripper. I had to pay her a little bit and got some police women to come in and, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't go quite as far as the stripper would. So we got the, we got the stripper to come in, a couple of police women to come in and dress sexily and, and a couple of guys to be my crooks and sitting around talking about trash, talking trash at the strip club and, Burning, got to burnt the policeman, and uh, I don't know. Just it was a lot of fun to make, and and we all had a lot of fun. I put myself in it. I I did it a little bit different. I put myself in it, and my old partner Bobby Arnold and a couple other uh, policemen and ATF agents that we'd worked with back on these cases, and then I got our old friend Bill Owsley uh, from the FBI's in it, and uh, so it's. Uh, I look forward to you guys seeing it. If you would. Uh, I look forward to you guys seeing it, and, and as I said earlier, if you would go ahead and, and hit the digital download for the dollar ninety nine, be immense help to the podcast. You know, we make a buck off that, but that's not really what it is. It's trying to get as many people as I can in a short period of time to download it or to rent it, and then Amazon will start recommending it to others. They'll think, hey, people really like this movie, and I think they will. And I think you'll want to uh, tell your friends about it and, and get them to to uh, hit it up. And then I've got my film Gangland Wire out there. You can do the same thing, a digital uh, rental for $1.99 on Gangland Wire. Uh, if you want to make a donation of $25 or more to the uh, podcast, I will send you either a copy of Gangland Wire or Brothers Against Brothers. I've sent out several of those already. I have the Kansas City Mob Tour app. Every little bit helps, as we say, and, and I'll make a little bit of money off of that, but it's not so much money as I want you to be able to take a mob tour of Kansas City, even if you're in Dallas or you're in Fort Worth or you're in, uh, uh, why well, I say Dallas and then Fort Worth, those two cities are right next to each other. I think that's because my son's up here and he lives in Fort Worth. But anyhow, I digress once more. Uh, Phoenix or Los Angeles or New York City, you want to see what some of these places look like in Kansas City and, and uh, read the stories about Kansas City mob in a real quick, easy manner. Why, you know, get that get that app. And uh, got my book, 
Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. And, and I recommend you get the Kindle version. And, and also, I'm going to add, if you want, if you make a $25 podcast, if you make a, I want to add another prize. If you make a $25 donation to the podcast, whether it be by uh, Venmo or, or on my uh, website, I'll I'll send you either gangland wire or brothers against brothers or i will send you a gift certificate to get the uh, book leaving vegas in the kindle version so you can just then download as a kindle version so hopefully that'll stir up some more uh, uh, more donations because we always need money to pay for the uh, hosting of the podcast and help do research and all those kinds of things and i hate asking for money but it's kind of part of it uh, plus, it makes me feel better. When I realize people will pay me money, I realize that I must be doing something. If I wasn't doing anything, you wouldn't. Nobody give me a dime. They just they tune out and not give me a dime. So I appreciate it. I know I feel like I'm, I'm instructing and enlightening people in in the mafia and and how the police deal with the mafia from the more from the police standpoint from the mafia standpoint. I think and and I really look forward to talking with Steve. This is going to be the first of uh, several appearances I got a feeling on his podcast because uh, he's the funniest guy you ever you ever talked to, and he's got stories. Man, has he got stories? We just got to get him to tell them. He's a little nervous about telling some of them in Kansas City or about Kansas City, and he probably won't. But he's got a ton of stories about other cities, and and especially from the time he was in uh, penitentiary. I mean, you spend uh, ten solid years in the federal system you're going to have some stories so good night wiretappers music provided by our good friend and super fan from portland oregon casey mcbride thanks casey